We are kicking things off with a word from our sponsor. The new streaming service, Film Movement Plus, opens a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best films from around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are some of the best films from 2020, including The Wild Goose Lake, Zombie Child, and more. Available on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, as well as streaming online and on mobile, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But as a listener of Watch with Jen, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code WATCHWITHJEN, all one word. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen. An online magazine devoted to exploring the relationship between movies and the business of being alive. The prestigious and well-respected Brightwall Dark Room publishes some of the most intensely personal, thoughtful, and eye-opening film pieces on the web. Last summer, I was honored to speak to their founder and editor-in-chief, the Seattle-based writer and professional therapist, Chad Perman, about Brightwall's origins and missions in an informative hour-long episode that I encourage you all to seek out. But in talking to not only Chad, but one of Brightwall's most prolific artists, Brianna Ashby, who's now on hiatus, and also my good friend Travis Woods, who's also an editor and contributor to the Film Journal, I knew I wanted to collaborate with them on something else soon. Starting to think about Brightwall and its content, Chad and I settled on the idea of comfort movies, and generously, a handful of Brightwall editors signed on to chat with me about one of their favorite comfort films. For the past month or so, I've been recording our short yet engaging discussions and have edited them together here for you to enjoy today. So sit back, maybe grab a notebook and pen, and listen to us talk about our favorite comfort movies. What better way to begin this episode than starting with the founder and editor-in-chief of Brightwall Dark Room, writer and professional therapist, Chad Perman. Chad, thank you so much for doing this, and welcome back. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me on again. Oh, of course. Anytime. I've spoken to a number of your passionate and articulate editors about some of their favorite comfort movies, and I've loved every minute of it. So what do you think it is about the topic that resonates so strongly with Brightwall? Um, well, I mean, we, <laughs> I mean, I think probably everybody likes comfort movies, but uh, yeah. <laughs> we probably think why that comfort might be happening more so than, than the average bear. So um, I think that's a big part of it is we like comfort movies, but we also like overthinking things and, uh, and talking about them. So, um, so if you ask us to come on and talk about them, we will do that forever. Hey, that's my kind of thing. So perfect. Yeah. Absolutely. That's probably why I love Brightwall so much. <laughs> well, that's, that's what I hope. I mean, that's, we want, we like like-minded people. That's, that's yeah. the goal. 
Absolutely. Well, for your comfort movie of choice today, you've selected a film that's become sort of synonymous with not only you, but all of Brightwall. Writer-director John Patrick Shanley's 1990 romantic comedy, Joe versus the Volcano, which has evolved into a cult favorite over the last 30 years. So Chad, why does this one speak to you? And were you always a fan of it or did it grow on you? Um, Well, I'll answer the first part first. Uh, I think the main thing to say, just to be fair to everyone else on the staff, I, I'm, I'm not sure if anyone else likes it even remotely at the level that I like it. So uh, <laughs> anonymous with us because I, I, uh, I use my, my power in that one very specific way. I try not to use my power too much, but uh, we're going to be a pro of Joe versus the volcano site forever, as long as I'm okay. in charge. So, so uh, I, I think a few people have not even seen it on staff. Um, okay. Probably are worried uh, what happens if they don't like it. And of course that's fine. I'm so familiar with people not liking it and you are welcome to not like the movie. That is okay with me. Okay. Um, I just really love it. Um, and I know, Oh, actually Ethan did watch it a, like a year or two ago. Cause he, you know, heard me talk I, at this point. I've talked it up so much that it would be natural to be even more disappointed than maybe a normal disappointment. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Um, so yeah, <laughs> and you, I think it's somewhere on his letterbox account. If you look it up, um, he did not like it the way that I did at all, um, and I think struggled to give it three and a half stars. So I'm just be, just being fair and being devil's advocate. Uh, there are plenty of haters in the world, and that's fine. Uh, <laughs> but for me personally, um, I, I did not like it right away. Uh, I actually, I did see it. Um, I know when we had talked several months ago, uh, mm-hmm. mentioned kind of seeing um, a lot of the same movies at the same time, uh, probably around the same age. And yeah. Um, though you were allowed to see non PG movies. So, uh, you could see a lot yeah. more. <laughs> um, thank, thank, thank the Lord. Uh, you know, Joe versus the volcanoes rated PG. So I did see that in the theater. Um, and my, my main memories of it, obviously, uh, were far from that. This is going to be the, the movie that I talk about more than any other for years. Um, I was really disappointed. I didn't actually like it very much. Um, mm-hmm. I was, Another PG movie, uh, a couple of years before, big. Um, I was a huge big fan. Oh, big, yeah, big, big, absolutely. Big, big, <laughs> <laughs> uh, big, it was big the first fan. movie I saw in theaters twice, which was like a special treat, if you remember your, your first uh, one you saw more than once. Um, so I, I was, uh, you know, all in on Tom Hanks, like most people, but uh, especially at that time after Big had come out. And um, that's all I really knew is he was in it and I could see it in the theater <laughs> um, or at all. Um, and so I was really excited to see it. And then I was kind of like a lot of people that don't like it, which is mm-hmm. why I understand that reaction. I was like, well, I'm not sure what any of that was. <laughs> That's not like movies that I'm used to seeing uh, in my little uh, small world there. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I just didn't really think of it either, uh, probably for, well, that was what, 1990. So yeah, for about nine or 10 years, um, just had it kind of locked into my head as, oh, yeah, that was, that was terrible. Um, and uh that's about all the thought I gave it and then I worked at um a video stores a lot in college and ended up at Scarecrow Video which I I was mm-hmm. also talk about all the time um it's still there it's still a great place um and we had robust discussions about all kinds of movies and there was a thankfully for for me in my life uh, uh a wonderful manager that I had uh, named Ed who was a huge Joe versus the Volcano fan and I was pretty sure it was a shtick because a lot of us had shticks, you know, like I like yeah. this terrible movie and here's my 
you know, everyone thought they were Quentin Tarantino at the video store explaining their, their theories. So I thought it was one of those things. Um, but he was pretty persistent about it. <laughs> so I watched it and I was probably, I guess, I don't know, probably around 20-ish, maybe, uh, 21. Um, and it just had a very different experience with it. And just, I don't think I was full on obsessed with it yet, but I was like, oh, there's a lot that I just had no idea was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I was older. I'd been through more things in my own life. So, it, you know, some of the adults being stuck in, you know, their own ruts stuff resonated a lot more. Um, and I still, and to this day, I'm not a, uh, and when I wrote about it, I said this, I'm not a huge fan of a lot of the parts of the third act still, so that I've never yeah. got okay with that. Um, mm-hmm. But every other part of it, I just, I love so, so, so much. Um, and now it's to the point, I mean, I, I watch it probably a couple times a year. It used to be once a year. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and it's just, yeah, purely a comfort thing. I, I put it on in specific. I always watch it on Thanksgiving for some random reason I'm not sure of. Um, and then I usually at some other point in the year just need a, need a hit of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll stumble my way into watching it again and just remember how much I love it. So that's my very long answer to your, to your questions. Oh, that's wonderful. It's interesting you talk about watching it at different points in your life, because I think we are about the same age. And when I saw it, it was new on video. I was not a fan at all. I did not get the movie. And I've watched it. I think I just rewatched it because I knew we were going to discuss it. And I think this was like the fourth time I've seen it. I've progressively liked it a bit more each time. I don't love it but I respect a lot of what it's doing. Um, I think with age, as you experience things, especially that whole beginning with him at his job, it's very metropolis and very much like by this point, we've all worked in jobs that are like soul sucking and dead end. Yes, unfortunately. Um, places yeah. of employment. <laughs> yeah, most of us have at some point or another, like you have to, you have to, um, pay your bills so you might work in jobs you hate and so that whole beginning is very much like dark humor cathartic yeah and I enjoy that a lot and then yeah it gets progressively wackier it gets a little Preston Sturges and satirical Uh and very crazy and I like a lot of the elements I don't know that they necessarily go together that's been my thing but I do like it a little bit more. Like I watched it then in my 20s. I think I watched it in my early 30s and now I'm going to be 40 in May. And so I watched it again and like it a little more each time, but I'm not quite there yet. 80, you're going to, it's going to be your favorite movie. It's going to be my favorite when I'm 80, you bet. (laughs) I'll come on. We can do the uh, octogenarian film podcast. I know. Or whatever podcasts are at that point. Yeah. Yeah, in like right. capsule form or something. Yes. <laughs> oh man. So are there any other movies you want to point out? Anything else? You said you watch it on um, Thanksgiving. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I do. Uh, I'm trying to think of it. It's been such my go-to answer for any question like this for so long that I, I yeah. there's a whole relation of comfort movies that I have, but that's just always the one that, that pops and, uh, you know, when we, when we talked about what I would talk about, um, I, you probably saw that process play out. I was like, I should come up with something else. And I was like, no, I'll just talk no, about this. This one. is the one. Hey, go um, with your gut. That's But yeah, perfect. there's lots of them. I mean, I got, oh, since I'm in this, no one will be able to see this since it's not a video, but I got, I got my 
my new criterion stuff you know so moonstruck's a big comfort one i know you like that one and, yes you know, i love that time. movie that's a big synonymous with bright wall um, movie as well yeah that's uh, that one is at least more uh staff wide um okay appreciated it and that's usually if there's an entry point that i can get someone to watch joe versus volcano at this point in their life uh, yep. it's because they're a big moon star fan same guy written by and the same guy yeah like, yeah but he also did five corners and that one sucked and i was like okay yeah <laughs> so um, yeah that one's not my suck. favorite but i actually not- i respect it though yeah i yeah. should have gone with uh when I haven't seen this in 30 years, I just remember Ebert's review. I just remember Jan- January Man, that was Kevin Klein one. Whatever that was, Ebert yeah. said it was like one of the movies of all time. Um, so yeah, if people know enough about about him, um, and now this thankfully kind of went under the radar, the, the Wild Mountain. Yeah, I, I had not, to review that. Yeah, that uh, was inexperience. <laughs> it's very very hard for me to uh, yeah to stuff that's getting slammed that I know is from someone that I love. So um, yeah. Ethan did on that one and watched Ethan it enough like it. he became a huge proponent and fan of it. he's the only person i found on earth that likes it so i have a little bit of hope that i might find something to oh like. ethan did like one yeah. that time he, okay he, he took he bit the bullet for everybody and paid the 20 bucks or whatever right when it came oh, out okay um but did not you know it was just more like i know that this is not going to be there's many problems with this, but I still kind of have affection for it. And then he would watch it another time or two. And then he was like, I, this is great. And I'll, I'll fight for it. So. Oh, cool. So I don't Someday I'll try that one, but I'm, I'm not, yeah. I'm not ready to dislike a, a John Patrick Shanley thing. So. No, I didn't hate it as much as other people did either. I always go in movies, hoping I'm going to love it. You know, yeah. I'm not really going in. <laughs> I mean, who who wants to go in hoping they're going to hate something? It's well, kind of a like, well, do you even like movies basically yeah, when they, when you have that attitude? But yeah, I didn't hate it as much as other people did. I saw what he was going for. Like there was the big reveal, all these articles about. Yeah, I've stayed away from those. I don't know. I just yes, know the reveal, and I'm like, twist. I don't think it was literal. People like it. Okay. Yes, it's a <laughs> metaphorical know. thing. I mean, it's a little literal, but. Yeah. yeah, it's. I think he well, meant it in a fanciful way. I mean, given given who he, is, I mean, outside of maybe doubt, um, yeah, that's his thing. Like, if, yeah. he very rarely is operating on a strictly like linear or you know, yeah, uh, what you see is what you get level. There's always some fanciful stuff, some whimsical stuff. You know, that's probably part yeah. of what I respond to. Yeah, some uh, Irish whims. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. If, if if it's, I'll find something to like about it if I can. <laughs> yes, I compared it to Moonstruck in places because oh, there is a scene that comes right out of like his thinking that brought us Moonstruck, which has Emily Blunt being entranced by Swan Lake and she blasts it in the Irish countryside and it's just very magical. So it was like that brought it right back, Moonstruck. So I think there are things about it you'll like, um, okay. hopefully. I don't yeah. think you're going to... It's going to be Joe versus the volcano or anything, oh, but, no. yeah. but, but I didn't hate it. Hate it. Yeah. Just wasn't that great. Uh, people didn't love the accents as well. Yeah. Yeah. The Pretty accents bad. were a little, yeah, a little off maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There were some problems, Chad. What can I tell you? Yeah. Not a great one, but yeah. Yeah. But not the worst movie of all time or anything. Well, and the other thing I always uh, am looking for with any of his stuff, even as, a few of his plays that I've read um, is if the moon makes an appearance. Cause usually if the moon is yes. 
in the movie. There's it's going to be at least a semi decent movie of his. Um, yeah. Struck. It's in the title, and Jovers Volcano, the big moon, is mm-hmm. the iconic scene that um, everyone knows, or uh, image that everyone knows if they know it. Yeah. Um, so if there's a moon in in the new one, any moon scenes? Yeah, early on there is okay. a scene that I'm, I'm yeah, involves the sky and yeah, so he, he loves that. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Well, I really want to thank you for doing this. Are there any others that you want to give a shout out to? Like, you know, you said you watched this on Thanksgiving. Oh. So what are your other Thanksgiving movies? Maybe there's something um, there. Well, I mean, with uh, with two kids and, and a, a very domesticated life, I don't have time usually to get more than one movie in on a day okay. anymore. Gotcha. <laughs> Plus, I want to stay up really late, which sometimes happens. Um, <laughs> but my other comfort food movies in general, by far, uh, I mean, it's easy to pull. Um, I'm just worried I'll miss some, but I guess it doesn't matter. Uh, a lot of more ones I bought uh, just recently. The Philadelphia Story is a big one. I just yes, did that love that. last week. Um, I'm actually editing a piece right now where uh, she talks about Hepburn and Grant and through Holiday and um, yeah. Philadelphia Story bringing a baby. So I was like, well, I should rewatch these. You know, I didn't have to convince myself very hard. No. Um, so yeah. I've been going through it. But yeah, I mean, every every time I see Philadelphia Story, it, it ends up, you know, for the next few months in my in my top four on Letterboxd just because I'm reminded yeah. of how amazing and great it is. And then I kind of forget. I was like, oh, maybe I just was in a good mood. About it. But, so Philadelphia Story and then I met the other one I always put in there whenever I'm talking about that is The Awful Truth because I... Oh, I love the uh, awful truth. So, yeah. Sometimes it's even more than uh, the Philadelphia story, but mm-hmm. um, depends on my mood. So th- those are my two kind of screwball comedy-ish uh, or classic film ones that I, I return to often. Um, That's perfect. Yeah. Yes, the, the apartment, which is not in that same era. but So the, yeah. we're just the going black and white. Yeah. Through the Apartment, The Awful Truth, and Philadelphia story. I, I can watch any of those movies any day of my life and be happy. Um, yeah, it would be. One oh. great triple feature there too, yeah. and that then follow it up with Joe versus the volcano. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't. In my, I don't I, I've never directly watched another one right at the same time because I'm aware of the flaws of Joe and. Uh, oh, okay, gotcha. Don't yeah. want to be. Oh yeah, this is why, why do I keep advocating for this movie? It's not like I'm just <laughs> okay. I'm Make Joe my, yeah. a separate occasion and yeah. just knock it's yourself itself. out on the black and whites another time. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Yeah, they and then do I, it for also, Thanksgiving, I think, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's a Wonderful Life, uh, which I've written about and talked about for years as well. Um, but no complicated journey there. I've, I've loved that one since I was like ten. Um, okay. But that's another watch it every year one for me. Um, okay. Great. And then yeah, just more casual ones. I uh, I could watch Out of Sight any day of the week. Um, oh yeah. The ones I was just talking about, <laughs> but uh, I yeah. love that movie. Out of Sight uh, is wonderful. Yep. Podcast news is on Brightwall. Account a lot. Broadcast news. Yeah. Yeah. Broadcast news. Absolutely. Thank you for reminding me of my own (laughs) comfort movie. Yes, absolutely. uh, I'm currently trying to figure out when my kids can watch that one because we we did Moonstruck finally a couple of weeks ago, which is a thrill. Um, I was able to do Joe versus Volcano with them a year or two ago because it's PG, so they're they're okay on that. And uh, yeah, and then, oh, we did Singing in the Rain recently. That's another one of my comfort movies. Um, Yes. Movie. Yeah, great uh, taste there, Chad. Yeah, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm I'm hitting pretty obvious ones here, but but yes, all of those uh, I really like those, and they really make me feel good and don't uh, make me ruminate about anything negative involved in watching them. So, so perfect. The, and then well, any Scorsese. Is, that's yeah. last thing. Yeah, Scorsese's what? Yeah, any pretty much any, any Scorsese. Scorsese. Yeah. Comfort mind, but I 
I watched Casino probably 50 times in college. Um, yeah. We would just on our dorm our freshman year, and it would just play all night. So <laughs> a good one. Next, we have Brightwall editor Kelsey Ford. Kelsey, thank you so much for being here. How are you? And how did you first discover and join the Online Film Journal? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm doing well. Um, I've been with Brightwall for about, oh God, um, six or seven years now, I think as editor for about six years. Um, but I've been writing for them for a couple years before that. Um, and it was actually, I was introduced by my friend, um, Stephen Sparks, who wrote some essays for the site and wanted me to write some essays for the site. So he connected me with chat over email um, and it just kind of built from there. It's been a really amazing opportunity to be like involved over all these years and watch it grow the way it has. Cool. Have there been any essays that you've written that are your favorites that you want to give a shout out to so people can look them up? <laughs> yeah, the one that I'm probably most proud of, I wrote a few years ago. Um, I wrote it about, if I can remember, a few films. There was Under the Skin, The Skin I Live In, and Eyes Without a Face. Um, and it was about how um, women are given these masks to have like men kind of like put their identities on them. Whereas like uh-huh, in films yeah. where like men wear masks, they don't lose identity. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like inflation of identity with um, image. Um, I'm really proud of that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sounds fascinating. I'm going to have to look that one up. I love your thesis with that. Very cool. Well, for your comfort movie today, you chose two adaptations of the same 1953 play by Samuel A. Taylor called Sabrina Fair. First, mm-hmm. we have the very famous 1954 version by Billy Wilder, starring Humphrey Bogart, Audrey Hepburn, and William Holden. That was followed by the unfairly maligned 1995 remake from Sidney Pollack, starring Harrison Ford, Julia Ormond, and Greg Kinnear, which I will fully admit to not only loving, but actually watching far more often than the also great original. So Kelsey, what are your thoughts on Sabrina and the two adaptations? (laughs) I absolutely agree with you. Um, I think it's uh, the 1995 one is the one that I return to the most as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I found it when I was a kid. Like I remember watching it with my mom in her bedroom. Um, she loves rom-coms. And so like, it was very much like a nice Saturday afternoon movie for us to watch together. Um, I actually didn't know it was a Billy Wilder film for until kind of recently, like more recent than I should um, admit to. Um, so when I got to watch that, I, you know, I obviously love Wilder. So watching mm-hmm. a story that I'm so familiar with and love, but like in his world with, you know, Humphrey and Audrey and everything, it was wildly soothing, but I still just keep going back to the 95 one. Yeah. It's kind of like a living fairy tale or a storybook. Like, I mean, there's the same voiceover with the, you know, mm-hmm. an outdoor swimming pool and the tennis courts and all of that, but it's just magical. Like I remember, seeing I'm old I actually saw um, the Sabrina remake in the theater and so I went and I remember it was New Year's and my parents were seeing something else I think the grumpy old men sequel and I'd already gone (laughs) to that with my friend yeah I've got a weird memory and so I went into the theater to see Sabrina by myself and I was like "Ooh, I'm grown up and then I'm watching this just movie that transports you and it's like you're being swept away into a whole new world so pretty yeah it's it's really fantastical and definitely like a fairy tale you know I think it um I like to joke that I'm the before 
in most movies that have a makeover, like, no. um, you know, like heavy hair and like glasses, whatever. But I think it's true. And like, I, you know, I went to Paris after I graduated college and I totally had to bring it in the back of my mind, you know, when I went oh, there. Yeah. Um, and I just, I rewatched the, the 95 film over the weekend. And one of my favorite examples of like how to, not like how to do anything because, you know, but just an example of updating a 50s movie for the 90s is when she says uh, that Linus was on the Time magazine cover and David did a Gap ad. Did a Gap ad. I love that. Yes. So it's so just exactly that year. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. And Greg Kinnear, I think, I can't remember if this was the first thing he had done, but it was like the first big thing because he was the talk soup guy on E! Channel. And I remember like, you know, remembering that and seeing him on the on the movie screen. I'm like, well, he's, you know, jaw-droppingly handsome and everything. But yeah, it was like, this guy should just forget talk soup and be an actor. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So charming. Um, I mean, Harrison Ford also, like his yeah. glasses are so good in the movie. <laughs> Linus Larrabee is lonely. Like he plays it very, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's so, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of like the fairy tale thing too, right? It's like you can get the guy who doesn't feel anything to fill things for you, like yeah, which is toxic in its own way, but you know, it works for this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what a cast! I mean, Paul Giamatti is one oh of God, the servants, which cracks me up, and then. You know, and there's just some good lines in there. I forget who plays the dad, but have you been watching Remains of the Day again, which is so 90s as well. <laughs> and Lauren Hawley is great. So, yeah, they're just wonderful. Yeah, and also I noticed this time J. Smith Cameron is the um, the stewardess on their private plane. Which oh, was, really? Yeah. All right, now I'm going to have then, to watch it again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, she she's she's the talkative one that just wants to keep talking, and Linus is like Carol. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, yeah, Sabrina. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sabrina Fair. I like your name. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, the original one is you know beautiful, and I love Billy Wilder. It's definitely not my favorite Billy Wilder movie, or my favorite. Thanks bogey or William William Holden or yeah um, I'm kind of more of a love in the afternoon and Roman holiday person when it comes to Audrey Mm -hmm. but you know you can't beat Audrey Hepburn in anything so she's amazing and it's very watchable but the new one I just keep coming back I think we grew up with it maybe that's why I don't know yeah it's it's a little implanted I think yes (laughs) I know. Well, is there any other romantic comedies as long as you're here that you want to give a shout out to that you love to watch for comfort? Um, the first thing that comes to mind isn't a romantic comedy, but I just watched it's there's some romance in it. I just watched Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. So more comedy than romance, but um, oh, it's really this, great. Yeah, and, I've heard yeah. that. I've heard it's really it, bananas. It's, it's bananas and it commits and it's fun. Cool. Well, hopefully <laughs> people will check that one out as well. Thank you so much for doing this, Kelsey. It was really great talking to you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Next, we're joined by Ethan Warren, who's a senior editor at Brightwell Dark Room. Ethan, thank you for being here. How did you first get involved with this online film journal that's so wonderful and so well-respected? 
Um, so it was about, um, I think, like end of 2016, um, I had been kind of looking for, for my way to, um, you know, express myself creatively um, as sort of uh, goofy as that can sound. Um, and, and I had tried um, filmmaking. I, I had written and directed a movie. Um, I had done some playwriting and, and those things were also fulfilling, um, but weren't really um, kind of integrating well with, um, I had just gotten married and, and was starting a family out here in the suburbs. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but film was still the art form that I was, I was most passionate about. Um, but I found conventional criticism a little bit, um, you know, it, it's, it's such a fascinating art form, but it doesn't necessarily touch, um, the sort of all the different realms of, of creativity that I was curious about. And then I discovered Bright Wall, Dark Room, um, which Chad Perman intentionally created as mm -hmm. a place that would, that would be a home for more experimental um, approaches to film criticism, like, you know, bringing in kind of poetic or, um, you know, blending film criticism with creative writing. Yes. And I remember the, the first piece I saw was uh, Kelsey Ford's piece on Manchester by the Sea. And oh. it's this very, very personal piece that sort of is embracing the movie and engaging with the movie, but so very much coming at it from uh, how it touched like these very intense personal feelings for her. Mm. And, you know, that is something that exists in film criticism. It's what made Roger Ebert... Um, you know, as, as great as he was, is how he embraced the the creative and the personal and the the analytical. But I had never seen it quite this sort of, <laughs> I, I had never seen anybody go for it, I guess, yeah. <laughs> the way that I saw uh, Kelsey do in that piece. And then uh, in uh, the rest of the pieces, as I um, sort of plunged through the archives, and, and then they put out a call for um, the Studio Ghibli issue. And I had just had a daughter. Um, and uh, that experience just triggered so much um, thought that that intersected so nicely with Spirited Away that um, I wrote about that and sent it off. And uh, it was kind of a match made in heaven for me, at least. Perfect. So the rest was history. Yep. Yes. Well, I know we chatted about comfort movies via email where you mentioned you were deciding between Jim Jarmusch's Poetic Patterson, which you wrote a Brightwell essay about a few years ago, and the movie you chose for us today, Bill Forsyth's 1983 film, Local Hero. I rewatched and so enjoyed it last night, so I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Please tell us about Local Hero and why you consider it a favorite comfort movie you would like to recommend today. Um. Well, you know, it, it actually, it goes back to um, my relationship with my daughter, who's now four um, oh. and she loves movies, but um, she's very easily stressed out. Um, I just wrote a, a whole uh, essay for Brightwell Darkroom about uh, watching Gene Kelly movies with her and why those um, are really great for a kid who uh, gets stressed out when people are even a little bit mean to each other yeah. <laughs> in movies. Um, but even then, you know, there's, there's tension in, mm -hmm. you know, every movie. And then, so I was saying to her, like, you know, you, you've got to be okay with conflict in movies because there is no storytelling if there isn't conflict. True. And then, and then I, I watched Local Hero and I was like, ah, oh, she got me <laughs> because <laughs> 
this is a movie that um, is so compelling and is so um, involving, but is is really devoid of, of conflict in the way that we think of it typically. Um, mm-hmm. And that's not to say that it's flat or it's dull. Um, it's it's very sort of um, it's it's got a crackling energy to it, even as the characters are are mostly all driving in the same direction, even if you know, albeit at different angles. I guess for people who don't know, um, it's a movie from uh, the eighties. Um, I'm blanking on the exact year right now. Um, I think I'm going to say 1983. Yep. 83, yeah. Um, about a um, an oil man, a sort of mid level oil executive from Texas, who is sent to Scotland. Uh, to negotiate the deal to uh, purchase a huge uh, chunk of land on this uh, on the Scottish coastline, uh, so that they can uh, tear it up and and build an oil refinery, mm-hmm. and so you sort of have the gist in your mind of what that'll be. He's going to get there, and you know he's going to butt heads with the locals, and they're not going to want to sell, and they're going to you know he's going to yeah. be won over to their way of life. Um, but the first major twist is he gets there and they're looking forward to selling. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's 10 minutes in and, and the conflict that you're expecting to drive the movie is just out the window. Mm-hmm. And then it does, it does become him being one over to this way of life, but then not even in the way that the goal of the refinery is, is invalidated. Like everybody as, as sort of weird as it is to watch at this point, everybody is really trying this whole movie to to rip up the Scottish coastline and put in an oil refinery. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to spoil the the joys of this, the journey for people who haven't seen it, but um, it does not end up being a sort of ecologically nihilistic story. Uh, no. But the thing that, um, you know, I, I described it to a friend last night. I, I watched it three weeks ago and I watched it again last night and I, I could watch it again tonight. Um, <laughs> is it's, I described it to my friend as, um, gently weird and weirdly gentle how perfect Um, yeah it's like it's it's there's all these little vignettes that are all just like a little bit strange but not in a way that kind of calls attention to itself Mm -hmm. um it's not like a sketch comedy movie no um but it's it's yeah just just these little sort of like brush strokes of of moments and you know it's it's comedy that's not laughing at anybody um, it's very hard to describe the movie without it making sound making it sound a little like dweeby, you know. Like it's a no. movie where everyone's really nice to each other and it's gentle. Yeah. Um, it's internalized. One thing you were bringing up there with the sketch comedy moments, you can see it a little bit. There's a character played by Burt Lancaster. He's the oil boss and he is kind of at a crossroads in his personal life he's at an existential dilemma and he's got a therapist who is mean to him and like intentionally this is his weird form of therapy and so that's kind of a comedic bit that you wouldn't really see in most films and it kind of goes on and then there's a bit with a rabbit in Scotland so, and then the very amorous couple so there are these little elements but it isn't too much I think in some other hands it could have been a little too cutesy or too skit like yeah right yeah like like there's um the moment that just 
gets me the most uh, is is he's just standing around shooting the shit with a bunch of fishermen and there's a crying baby in a stroller. And just as the button on the moment, he goes, oh, whose baby is that? And it just yes. goes from face to face as they each are looking at each other and then realizing, oh, shit, whose kid is this? We have no idea. Pardon yeah. my language. <laughs> You're fine. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and and something I um I really love is is speaking again of Gene Kelly. Um I know that that Forsyth was kind of inspired by Brigadoon, he said. Um oh, really? the, I love that. Yeah. The story of of two uh American tourists who get uh lost in the Scottish Highlands and stumble on this um village that only exists once every hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um and sort of are 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 won over to this more traditional way of life. Um and you know, Forsyth doesn't, it, it's, it's not an overtly magical story, but last night as I was rewatching it, um, there's this moment where he, it's um, Peter Rygert and, and uh, Peter Capaldi, um, yes. who you mostly know from, uh, you know, In the Loop and uh, The Thick of It and thick all those like, yep. very acidic stories. And he's so young and he's so sweet <laughs> in this yeah, movie. Yeah, he's just guileless. Yep. Yeah. Um, and they're on their way to town and they, they drive through... Um, a a mist or a fog bank and they get stuck and they have to spend the night in the car and then the fog lifts. And that's, I I just think that's such a beautiful way of sort of saying, you know, they have passed some barrier into this, you know, again, not exactly overtly magical, but just a little bit more um, heightened and special world. Mm -hmm. And I I think I I spent an hour talking uh, to my therapist about this movie (laughs) Oh really? Gotcha. <laughs> after I after I watched it because um, it, this is a movie that's been in my life since I was a kid because my parents would talk about it when I was growing up. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this is just this perfect movie. You got to watch it. It's you know, it's it's just one of the great films. And I never did because um, you know I was a teenager and I like yeah. And your parents told you it was good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I I um, I. Now I, I I just had my third uh, child. My uh, my newest daughter is is two months old. Oh, and, congratulations! Uh, she, thank you. And she was she was fussy um, one night about three weeks ago. So I was up at two a.m. and I had watched like parts of this movie over the years, but finally I said I'm just going to take it from the top and and make it the whole way through. And about halfway through, um, there's the scene uh, where where Mac, the the central uh, character, is he's been. Um, part of his task is that he has to be watching the skies in Scotland because his Mm -hmm. boss Bert Lancaster wants him to discover a comet that he can uh, put his name on. Oh, I love that scene. And yes. And he's, he's um, been up all night drinking at sort of the town uh, party and he goes outside and the Aurora Borealis is out and he doesn't know what he's seeing Mm -hmm. and he's hammered. Yeah. And he, he runs to the phone booth and calls back to Texas and he's describing this this phenomenon and he's drunk and he's just sort of slurring and trying to describe it and I just started crying <laughs> it's so beautiful I know there's just... there's something that I just find it, it touches this button for me that um I can I like only describe as as cosmic gratitude mm-hmm. that I just find so beautiful um it's it's similar to kind of the moment in um Joe versus the volcano which is uh, our editor-in-chief Chad's number Chad one movie. Chad loves it, uh, yep. Yeah, it's kind of like one of the emblematic movies of the site. Um, and it's very similar. Uh, Tom Hanks is lost at sea and has this um, 
he's near death and he the the moon rises and he says you know thank you for my life and he is is reformed by this sort of awe and gratitude at the the natural world and just nothing kind of refuels me spiritually mm-hmm. like that um and so i think that's you know if this is a comfort movie for me it is it is really sort of summed up in that one scene um, of just a, a drunk guy trying to describe the Northern Lights. Yes, just overwhelmed by the magic of the universe. Yes. Exactly, yeah. Oh, well, that's perfect. I think everyone should be sure to check out Local Hero. I want to thank you so much for talking about this today. Appreciate of it. Of course. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Well, next we have Carrie Corrigan. Carrie, thank you so much for being here. Can you tell us about your current role at Brightwall and how you first got involved with Chad Perman's online film journal? Um, I am currently an associate editor. Um, I think, I mean, I had been following Brightwall Dark Room for maybe like a year or so before, um, on Twitter before like last year, 2019, sorry. Everything is, time is. I know. A total it's a flat circle right now um 2019 I ended up submitting an essay for their Elaine May issue um and shortly after that I'd say like a couple months later I, I came on the team um which is just I love it I mean I was very flattered oh that's wonderful and I continue to be flattered I'm like in awe of everyone I work with there no that's so cool well, for your comfort movie today, you've selected one from the year I was born, Warren Beatty's 1981 film, Reds. I'm very excited to hear your thoughts, especially because Elaine May did a script polish on the film, and you're currently writing a book on May for St. Martin's Press. So, Carrie, what can you tell us about your connection to Reds? Reds is, I feel like, so Reds is a movie that I watched for the first time in either like late high school or early college. And I was just kind of like, it's too long. I can't sit through (laughs) this. Like, uh, it it should hit every box for me, but it's just, for some reason or other, it didn't click. And then I want to say like two years ago, Thanksgiving weekend, no time, nothing but time. I was like, I'm going to give it another chance. You know, I love Warren Beatty, love mm-hmm. like everything about it. I'm like, I'm older now, you know, whatever. And I just instantly was like, oh my God, like, what was I thinking? I'm obsessed <laughs> with this movie. Like absolutely nothing about it should work. Like it, it's, it just, it's a three hour long epic about American communists in Russia <laughs> but it's also like I don't want to say like not a romantic comedy but it hits those like snappy late 70s romantic dramedy beats in a way it does yeah a historical epic um with like documentary footage if you want to call it that the talking head stuff that's built in like on paper oh, yeah. it sounds like an absolute mess Mm -hmm. but then when you see it all stitched together you're kind of like this is brilliant and amazing and I I don't know it's one of those movies that I think I keep coming back to because there are so many parts of it that like I it's like I see it for the first time every time I watch it which is such a cliche to say but like there's something new to discover each time you watch it's so surprisingly timeless too. Like I just started revisiting it because I knew it was talking to you and I'm going to finish it later because it's so good. But the 
all the beats with the um, relationship between a man and woman who are both writers. And so the balance of creativity and love and their roles in their relationship. I mean, so many of those speeches, even though they were, you know, set way back then, seem very modern and very like they're still applicable today. And my favorite character, he steals the movie as far as I'm concerned. And my favorite, one of my favorite performances by Jack Nicholson is him as Eugene O'Neill. His scenes with Diane Keaton just kill me. Like the one where he, he gives her the declaration of if you were mine. And he's almost like mad at her for being left behind. I know it kills me. I have to rewind it every time. And then when he comes back and he's so heartbroken and he gives her the poem, he hasn't realized that she married the Warren Beatty character yet. And so you can do whatever you want, except not see me. And it's just like, oh, I love quiet, desperate, fucked up Jack Nicholson. That's my favorite Jack Nicholson. So it's such a beautiful performance. He's unbearably hot in this movie. I know, it's, it's surprising. <laughs> it's surprising. It's one of those things where I feel like Jack Nicholson, a lot of times when he's really hot in a movie, he's, my roommate and I argue about this all the time. Um, he's like an asshole character. And I some know, people are yeah. really attracted to that. And <laughs> this, in this role, he's still kind of got that smarmy, like I'm better than you and I know it and I'm better than him and I know it um, sort of energy, but there's something like you said, like quiet and at times heartbroken and vulnerable about him in yes. this role that is like, who, if you asked me to choose between Warren and Jack, I would not be able to. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's <laughs> such a good performance. And it's just like, yeah, like I said, it's, it's unbearably hot. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And as like an Elaine May scholar, when you watch it, are there line reads or anything that you can tell her fingerprints are on certain scenes? Oh my God. I'm the most obnoxious person to watch this movie with because every time I feel like there's some line, I, I, I do it a lot with the Emma Goldman lines. Okay. Um, but there are definitely snippets of dialogue where I'm, I just like, I'll be sitting there and I'll yell, that's Elaine. <laughs> like, <laughs> you can't, it, you just like, you know it. It's, um, or I don't know, I guess not everyone is like as obsessy as me, but like, there's something about her voice and the way mm -hmm. that she has um, women talking back to men. It's yeah. always, I feel like I can really tell that like the snap of it in conversations between women and men in this movie. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very sharp and it's very, um, I think it kind of echoes her own, uh, her own tendency to like snap back at men and kind of like, she always has a really witty retort and it's always kind of like humiliating them in a way. Mm -hmm. And I can tell that a lot with, with the Emma Goldman lines when she's, there's some line where she's like, it sticks out in my mind where she says something to Warren Beatty where she's like, you're wrong. And not only are you wrong, I'm going to tell you how you're wrong. Like, yes. it, it, there's something of, about that, that I'm just like, Oh, that's such an Elaine line. Yeah. There's a nice rapid fire screwball patter going on mm -hmm. in the movie. And I think that goes back to her comedy background or maybe that rubbed off on Warren a little bit, like say the lines very quickly. And I love that. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. I agree. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to talk about with reds? No, I just, it's a movie that is, I don't know. It's like, it's great because it is so long. I consider it a comfort food movie because it's like by now, I mean, you can just kind of, by now I've just taken to like putting it on in the background. Um, Oh, gotcha. Like, I don't know. It's a movie that I feel like if it sounds like, I don't know, you shouldn't watch this movie like seven times in a calendar year, but I just somehow (laughs) did. Um, Yeah. I don't know. It's just a masterpiece to me. A smart, horny masterpiece. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, can you tease out anything with the book or when it's going to be available for those listening? Um, I'm, I'm, just starting to write it. So okay. It's going to be a while. I am excited. I want to thank you so much for doing this, Carrie. Well, I'm delighted to welcome an editor who's been with the Film Journal since its earliest days. Elizabeth Cantwell, thank you so much for joining us. What is your role at Brightwall and how has it changed over the years? Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Um, I am currently an editor at Brightwall. Um, so I'm, you know, reading essays, voting on essays, editing essays. I've written a couple in the past year for the first time in a long time, which feels good. Um, as you mentioned, I actually got in on the ground floor, if you will, of yes. Brightwall Dark Room <laughs> back when it was like a Tumblr site named Filmosophy. <laughs> um, and I don't even... I barely remember how I got involved. It was one of those Tumblr things where, you know, somehow Chad and I connected and um, he was very open and said, you should, you know, help me out. And I was like, great. Um, And yeah, we worked together and I watched him really slowly build this small little um, blog into something really amazing, full of so many contributors and voices and perspectives and Um, I stepped away briefly from 2016 to, I guess, uh, spring 2020. So I had like a four-year hiatus where I was juggling work and kids. (laughs) um, But honestly, like the pull of Brightwall was so strong for me. It had always been such a positive experience for me, um, especially as a site that's, you know, a journal that's largely volunteer. basis in terms of the people working there. Um, Chad is not paying himself millions of dollars. No, (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's just been a very positive experience. And I was really excited to to come back and kind of rejoin the fold. Absolutely. When I spoke to Chad earlier last year, he actually brought you up right away when he was talking about the people he connected with. And he was so glad he was getting you back. So that is wonderful. Well, you've selected a fascinating comfort movie today, a film I unabashedly love, but perhaps it isn't one that many people would consider comforting. We're talking about Stanley Kubrick's masterful work of horror in the form of 1980s The Shining, which gives viewers the cathartic ability to work through trauma at a safe distance while watching its main characters navigate a frightening winter residency at the Overlook Hotel. Elizabeth, I can't wait to hear your take on it. So why do you recommend curling up with The Shining? (laughs) Um, Well, that's a great phrase. I I would curl up with The Shining anytime. Um, When I was thinking about, you know, this question of comfort movies, 
to me, what a comfort movie means is something that when you, if you come across it on TV, no matter what scene it is, you have to stop and watch it for a little while. And doing so makes you feel like better about Mm -hmm. stuff. Like, okay, it's going to be okay. And um, as you said, I think some people would consider The Shining not super comforting. But to me, it falls in this perfect genre of horror where it's not like body horror, right? Like, um, (laughs) for example, like, I love The Thing. The Thing is one of my favorite movies of all time. Obviously, Mm -hmm. the 1982 John Carpenter, right? Um, I think it's 82. I just threw that year out there. I'm hoping it's right. Um, (laughs) But I would not watch The Thing to be comforted because there's so much sort of disgusting, gory Mm -hmm disturbing imagery that I wouldn't feel it wouldn't make me feel at home Um, but the shining has that beautiful artsy weirdness to it Mm -hmm. that allows you to kind of feel like there's a hand guiding the camera that knows exactly what they're doing right yeah and I mean that's certainly true of Kubrick I think that um, it reminds me a little bit of the, like, I would put in the same genre, like Twin Peaks, right? Where there's this sort of bizarre, weird, horrific um, stuff unfolding, but it also feels in a way like, you know, that world, you've been in that yes. world before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, you know, I, I, I suffer from anxiety as do many people. Mm-hmm. And I find that seeing a decentered um, confused, nonsensical world reflected in film in a way comforts me because it tells me like, oh, this is not just your experience, right? True. Um, yeah. When Danny is trying to navigate the hallways of The Shining and the layout, the physical layout makes no sense, right? And you can try to map it out and there's doors that lead nowhere and rooms that couldn't possibly be rooms based on With the window. People. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to me, there's something really um, revolutionary about like reminding us that yes, this world is so difficult to navigate. Right. Mm -hmm. And all of us are kind of tricycling through these landscapes that don't make a lot of sense and good will win out in the end. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's hypnotic. It's beautiful. It's mysterious, but there's also kind of a recognition, a recognition when you're watching it kind of the same with Twin Peaks you feel like you know these people and you know they might be your neighbors or your family members or whoever it is so yeah I think that's part of it as well you had mentioned you taught a class did you incorporate this film in it yeah well I taught I taught a horror class to high schoolers for a while um, and it's a class I would love to teach again if given the opportunity and The Shining was definitely Um, one of the films we studied I mean there's so much again you could almost say it's overdone because there's so much that's been written Mm -hmm. about The Shining so much that's been you know debated about The Shining but I also think that that makes it comforting because it's out there in the public consciousness before you even see it right so a lot of my students you know even if they had never seen the movie they know oh yeah there's like an elevator full of blood or like oh yeah, Jack Nicholson is totally crazy, right? There's these sort yes. of cultural um, moments 
not cultural moments, that's the wrong phrasing. <laughs> There's these sort of cultural touch points um, that The Shining sort of carries with it that we all know. So even when you're seeing the film for the first time, you recognize pieces of it. Yes. Right. And then the more you watch it, the more it just sort of becomes part of the fabric of, you know, your experiences, I think. Um, and I do think that the weirdness of the characters where they're all just dialed up a little notch from realistic characters. Yes. <laughs> none of them are realistic in the way that they're no. portrayed. Right. I think that Shelley Duvall, you know, I know that she's been, some people hate her in that role and mm. she was terrorized on set by Kubrick and it's a horrible story, but also there's something so beautifully strange about that performance of someone yeah. who's unhinged in such a fragile way um, that it, that it's like compelling to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband is a writer, so mm-hmm. I will frequently, we quote this movie to each other a lot. Just the other day I was walking through and I said something like, this needs to be done as soon as possible. And we both mm-hmm. immediately said, mm-hmm. as soon as possible. <laughs> uh, that, like you can hear her saying it. Um, and of course, Jack Nicholson, it's like one of the best unhinged Jack Nicholson's because it's I one know. of the first. Yeah. And he's still weird. He hasn't turned it into a trope yet, right? It's still this bizarre, like his facial expressions, his gestures, um, yeah. the way he's totally still at moments is so strange. It really is. My favorite scene in the movie with Nicholson is when he goes and he visits the bar and his slow night tonight and is just this look that comes over his face and then he bursts out laughing and it's both hilarious and frightening but he hadn't yet reached that iconic Jack Nicholson thing where it seemed like shtick. It's interesting I talked to another one of your colleagues about Reds and we talked about a whole different level of Jack Nicholson so yeah Nicholson comforting I guess. (laughs) well yeah and he's um he's so different from the character in the book I mean I've taught the book too and I think the character in the book you do feel this sort of struggle for humanity there and Mm -hmm. it's more about a redemption story of a father and son which really Kubrick does not seem interested in doing (laughs) at all um and I like that about the film I like that you don't have to be pulled towards some kind of humanity because maybe this is another way that the movie is comforting to me um it doesn't require a lot of empathy to watch it doesn't feel emotionally draining for me right like there's some that can really sap you Mm -hmm. um there's a movie that I watched recently called I think it comes at night I think that oh yes Mm -hmm. And there's, I mean, not to spoil anything, but there is a really disturbing scene with a small child in it. Mm. And as a mother who has children, that kind of stuff really upsets me, right? And so even though I know it's a movie and it's horror and I know I'm in for some upsetting stuff, it's hard for me to move past something like that. But The Shining, it's really like an art piece. You're not asked to emotionally engage with these characters because Mm -hmm. like I said, they're so strange. They're almost not people. They're almost like humanoid aliens. (laughs) Yeah, um, that's a great point. Yeah, so it doesn't feel emotionally draining to watch. You don't feel like, oh my gosh, I'm empathizing with this with this man or I'm empathizing with this woman or I have like, I'm so worried for this boy. I mean, even though there is a small boy in The Shining, Again, he's really weird too. 
Um, yes, yeah. And not doesn't seem very. I don't know. I never worry about him in the movie. I'm not like, oh no, what's gonna? You know, Danny's gonna be okay. Yeah. Plus, he seems like he's a little bit in control or knowledgeable. His link to Scatman uh, Crothers always throws me, and it's really interesting. So, when you taught this, did you talk at all about that documentary, Room Two Thirty Seven? We talked a little bit about it. I didn't show it at all, um, but we did talk a little bit about some of the conspiracy theories. And I was more interested. I'm always super interested in the spatial disorientation yes. of the film, um, which again seems like it wouldn't be comforting, but actually is because you know, you you know you're in a space that's not real. You know you're mm-hmm. in a fantastical world, so you don't have to worry about it happening to you. No. Yeah, it isn't super realistic where you think, like, I'm not going to sleep for a month now. Like, no. Exactly. Yeah, there You're is not something about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a really good one. Are there any other points you want to be sure to bring up to people who might be watching The Shining with new eyes now? Um, well, I wish I could watch The Shining all over again for the first time. I know. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I actually was, when I was thinking about, you know, preparing for this podcast segment, I realized that I couldn't remember the first time that I had seen The Shining, which is interesting because I think, you know, we get a lot of essay pitches and many of them start with some version of like the first time I saw this movie, I was in my dad's house, you know, sitting on his couch or people usually remember like Mm -hmm. oh yeah I had this experience with this movie and I usually do too but for some reason I cannot remember the first time I saw The Shining I don't know maybe it has to do with that idea of it being so culturally ingrained in so Mm -hmm. many people and so many of us already know so much of the imagery but it just to me has always been a movie that I've known and liked I mean I know at some point I watched it for the first time. I can't remember when it was. You were uh, there all along, Elizabeth, just like him you know. in the movie, like since the <laughs> 20s. Like this movie, you were there from the beginning. I'm convinced. No. Yeah, I've always been at the hotel. <laughs> yes. Well, next up, we have Spencer Williams. Thank you so much for being here. Spencer, what's your role at Brightwall? Um, I occasionally write... Um, articles for them, and I occasionally read through the slush pile. Okay, cool. How long have you been doing that? Um, I've been doing that for about three months at this point. <laughs> so I'm pretty new. Wonderful. Well, and for your favorite, or one of your favorite comfort movies, you chose Whip It, the 2009 oh. feature filmmaking debut of actress Drew Barrymore, written by Shauna Cross and based on her novel Derby Girl. The film stars Elliot Page, Aaliyah Shawkat, Marsha Gay Harden, Daniel Stern, Kristen Wiig, Zoe Bell, Juliette Lewis, Drew Barrymore, Andrew Wilson, that's Luke and Owen's brother, Jimmy Fallon, and more. It's a remarkable cast. I always thought this one was a lot of fun, but it's underrated. So what is your take on Whip It, and why is it one of your favorite comfort movies? Yeah, for sure it's underrated. I think it's one of the most underrated sort of I, I don't know, I, I would put it in the same kind of echelon as, like, your Scott Pilgrim in that it's yeah um, it's just, like, really, like, hitting that zeitgeist moment, like, and just the cast is so incredible. I like yeah. the energy of the film is so just addictive. 
mm-hmm. um, from like the music choices throughout. It's just there's like not a single moment where you're bored or um, not sort of entranced by what sort of what's happening. But it also fulfills this like really <laughs> kind of like interesting fantasy for me as like I, I watched the film for the first time. I think I was still in high school, and so I was really. Um, I was sort of a theater nerd. Um, and by that, I mean sort of just, I participated in community theater, but I was always like knife number four, which is like- Me too, yes. to be, In my opinion. But there was a part of me that was just like very much wanting to kind of um, like pivot to something a little more hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so like watching uh, kind of derby scenes that was my first sort of introduction to this world of, of roller derby um and it became sort of this aspirational fantasy of mine to either like participate or just be amongst sort of that crowd of like really spicy punks and um just like that kind of like raw energy and collective um okay. so that's always been sort of the comfort that I kind of draw from that is like feeling like a cool kid um, just like by watching it, um, but yeah. maybe having not that translate kind of in my in my day to day life when I when I first saw the film. Absolutely, it's kind of like finding your tribe and figuring out what makes you spark or what their spark is in the movie because they live in a small town and they have to do beauty pageants with their mom. They are so nice uh, throughout the film and they're not into the beauty pageants, but they go. And so when they discover roller derby, it's just very cool to see them come alive among those wonderful people that they're with. Absolutely. So one thing I like about the movie is when I first saw it, I thought it took place in the 80s initially because it feels very retro like, you know, some of the, you know, they're driving, it's uh, Elliot Page and Aaliyah Shawkat, and they're in the car listening to like, Sheena is a punk rocker, which is a great song. And, you know, just some of the grunginess of roller derby that they get used to, like, you can never have enough eyeliner and the over makeup. And I, I assumed that we were looking at an 80s movie, but then as it goes on, you're like, oh, it's modern day, but it feels very timeless. Like the era that Drew Barrymore was, you know, getting introduced to us all and like Firestarter and E.T. So I always liked that aspect. Yeah, I think the sort of timeless quality that it has is it it taps into sort of a nostalgia that maybe like me as a high schooler wasn't like that tuned into just because I, I like had um, like my iPod Nano and, you know, was like wearing clothes like straight from Hot Topic, you know, so I wasn't really like that immersed in sort of everything that had happened prior to, to that moment. Yes. Um, and so watching the film really sort of, I don't know, it was, I, I hesitate to say that it was eye opening for me and that like old things existed, but I do think it, it sort of, um, it brings out this kind of comfort with uh, kind of like these older, like niche um, collectives, like, you know, taps into Riot Girl aesthetics and yes. all of these things that are like super cool and super hip um, and that have like recently seen sort of a resurgence in, in popular culture. And so in a way, I think this film is sort of ahead of its time um, and like I agree. kind of early. Um, we're tapping into sort of that um, kind of that moment or uh, re-tapping into that moment. 
It's amazing to me, too, that this was Drew Barrymore's first film. I mean, obviously, she'd been on movie sets like her whole life. But the amount of things that could have gone wrong, like people could have gotten seriously hurt. Oh, my goodness. They hit hard. And, you know, like I'm sure there's really good special effects. You do have Zoe Bell in there, who's a remarkable stunt woman. But I mean, like. Elliot Page, I don't know if they were that versed in skating. And when you see a full-on shot, you realize that is them. And so you're kind of nervous for everybody. You're like, oh my gosh, you know, Kristen Wiig is going to fall. Or so yeah, it's it's amazing that that was made. And I've been surprised that Drew hasn't followed up with another film. Yeah, yeah it seems sort of bizarre to me that there hasn't been sort of a, a, a not as necessarily a sequel to this film but like and just a next film because I think yeah this film arrived so fully formed and it was so fresh for me um to sort of see like geeks and nerds like pummel the shit out of each other yeah um, and to sort of be invested in I think a sports movie that isn't really a, a sports movie because I don't know, I think the onus on most sports movies is like there always has to be a team that wins and it's always focused on like the big win. Um, and yeah. like that's sort of what it inspires to. But in this, it's more so like, like the team could give a shit about winning. Like basically, I love that. We're know, number two uh, out of two. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I sort of love the kind of the wildness of, of just wanting to participate. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it doesn't matter sort of what the outcome is. I mean, obviously, you know, there are stakes. Um, with you know the Juliette Lewis character who I think is iconic. Um, I love her. At the yeah. end of the day, it's sort of like the kind of bravado of, of sports is sort of kind of pushed aside in favor of those more like intimate moments with the characters um, who are sort of there just to kind of like be in community with one another. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And so in a way, it did sort of feel more like you know kind of know like the the musical theater scenes and the uh, like you know the punk scenes you know where it's everyone, even if you're sort of on opposite sides of one another, there's still like that that thread that binds you all together in this kind of microscopic world that is yes. that exists counter to everything else outside of it. I know the understanding of, yeah, that there is a world and like you and there are other people like you. I really responded to the mentorship aspect of these people being so much older. Um, Elliot is pretending that they are 22 in the movie. And at first I'm like, are they 20 or, you know, and then we see a high school and you're like, whoa, okay. So they are posing as an older person, but getting kind of like all these big sisters to Elliot throughout that I thought was really kind of cool because I could respond to that. It's always nice to see people come before you. And I love Andrew Wilson's line, or maybe it's, no, it's Jimmy Fallon, who is the announcer and says something like, by day, these women are your like Whole Foods checkout girls or their teachers, nurses and whatever. And by night, you know, they are riot girls like exactly what you said and I always thought that was kind of fun yeah I just like every single person in this film is just so perfectly cast um and it's was so cool to see you know like like familiar faces sort of like Kristen Wiig um and obviously Elliot Page uh but then we have like Eve um who's yeah I loved Eve and you know 
Zoe Bell, who mostly does stunt work. It was so cool to see her like up front as like a fully yeah. kind of character. Um, and I love that this film, like I know that Juliette Lewis is sort of framed as like the villain of the film, but there's even, there's just so much empathy extended to her character too. Very um, much. They're the two um, deaf roller derby women who yeah. are also there and they're not made like a punchline. Um, the only real villain of this film is the the Landon Pig character, the, the boyfriend. Oh, um, yeah. Like, type who's just sort of almost kind of like an afterthought, honestly. And I think that that's yeah. fine. Um, yes. I don't have a problem with that character not necessarily being as fleshed out as, as the rest of the characters because... No. I think he serves like this purpose of like he is an afterthought like it's not about him um, no yeah he is their surrounding and the reason why they are seeking it out because they're not finding their outlet or their people in that small town uh was it i can't remember what the name of the small town was in texas is it Bodie? no something like that yes something similar and so he kind of represents the worst of that whole little area oh yeah i think it might be bodine because there's that funny scene where elliot and Aaliyah shawcat are dancing to jolene jolene and changing the lyrics i think it might be bodine yeah at first i'm like sure jen just make up a town name no but yeah so it's a really good pick i want to thank you so much for talking about whip it today is there anything else you want to add on the movie uh i would just say that if you haven't seen whip it it's i think it it, it is just such a energetic um really just like piece of like iconic filmmaking and i'm surprised that it hasn't gotten its sort of just do um and yeah. i think in the way that you know jennifer's body took a long time to sort of get to its kind of like critical mm -hmm. peak that it's in right now um i'm hoping for the same with with this film um, and it just has a very special place in my heart. Absolutely. It's interesting you mentioned Jennifer's body because I remember reviewing both of these films. And so I think they were both like 2008, nine or 10, like right in there. Yeah. So maybe enough time's gone by, people will discover these. I hope very so. cool. Well, next up, we have my good friend and pandemic movie club buddy, Travis Woods, who's an editor and contributor to Brightwall. Travis, how did you first join forces with the site and what is it like being a part of it? How did I first join forces? Um, one weekend in an existential panic, I wrote um, an essay on All That Jazz, the Bob Fosse movie, and submitted it. They liked it. And uh, to their eternal horror, uh, I've just kept coming back. And to their even greater horror, they somehow no. made me an editor. And so now I'm always around. And that's that's pretty much how I joined. And also, thank you for that nice introduction. I appreciate it. I did the I did the polite thing last, where I actually thanked you, and then I just jumped in and started talking about me first, as I usually do. No, as you did, you you know had to make fun of yourself and they would love to have you around. Are you kidding? You're Travis. Your pieces are like synonymous with Brightwall at this point. So. Oh, I, I, I wouldn't go that far, but thank you. <laughs> very nice of you to say. I appreciate it. So what is it like being a part of it now? Like what do you do there? Um, just um, edit and. I just usually sit in the back and make jokes. 
and make fun of make fun of Chad, our editor, and um, <laughs> be mean to him. Or uh, uh, no, no. Uh, usually, I just uh, I'm I'm a writer and an editor. Although I've been doing a lot less writing as my pandemic-addled brain has mm-hmm. kind of sloughed ever ever more into just a big hunk of mush, and I can barely. Uh, string a few words together into a sentence let alone write one of my ridiculous like eight billion word essays uh i i'll get back to that eventually i'm sure uh but no i do a lot of editing for the site um we also have some really cool projects coming up that i am going to be a part of and i've been helping to brainstorm but i don't know that i'm allowed to talk about them yet okay so yeah just kind of yeah hanging out doing editorial stuff you know editorial stuff as one does. Yes, as one does. Well, for your comfort movie today, you've selected a neo-noir classic, the 1984 indie film, Blood Simple, written, edited, produced, and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen in their filmmaking debut and starring a wonderful actress in her screen debut, Frances McDormand, who appears alongside John Getz, Dan Hedaya, and M. Emmett Walsh. It's sparse, spare, bitterly sardonic, and so compelling. And I must say, I'm very eager to hear your thoughts on why Blood Simple is the film you would like to settle in with most for a comfort watch. Well, um, Jesus, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious, but uh, I'm going to shotgun a lot at you uh, All right. to, to, to make it clear why I love it. Well, first off, you, you know, you, you correctly mentioned it's the first Coen Brothers film, yes. uh, first Francis McDormand film. It's also Carter Burwell's first musical score for a film. Is and right? uh, he became a director, obviously, later on. Uh, but this was Barry Sonnenfeld's first feature film first as big a cinematographer. One, yeah. He did a few. He did a TV movie and a documentary prior to this. But this is actually for his his first feature. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I have to call out uh, Carter Burwell's, before we get into the nitty gritty, uh, call out Carter Burwell's incredible an incredibly simplistic musical score, which is basically just this one moody circular piano riff that Mm -hmm. it it just plays like this, like knowing little smirk that dances around all of the film's characters, kind of slightly aware of all the things that they are increasingly blind to. And if you have not seen this movie, which I assume, you know, you should, you you really, I don't know why you'd be listening to this if you haven't watched it. Uh, So you you know (laughs) what I'm talking about, but uh it is it is the kind of thing that once you've watched the film, that score is just in a loop in the back of your brain for days. Mm-hmm. I rewatched the movie a few nights ago, just a because it is a it is my comfort food movie, and b uh, for to prep for this. And I was just walking around with that goddamn piano loop <laughs> in my head for three days, which is not the worst thing that can happen because I just said no. I was just talking about how great it is. Uh, yeah, God, why do I, 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 why do I love it? Um, Travis, that's not the reason you have the migraine though, right? Like you didn't hear it so many times that it just got stuck there. No, no, I, <laughs> I, I, came, I came in hot to this conversation with a migraine for altogether other reasons. Yes, uh, not Carter Burwell no, related. No, no, no. But uh, you know what, for the five, for the five people that are out there who have not seen this movie, I'll give a really succinct Here's an opening salvo of plot. And this is only part of it. So don't worry, you're not getting spoilers. Um, <laughs> but uh, the basic plot is you've got a guy named Julian Marty, 
played by the hairiest man in show business, Dan Hedaya. Uh, he owned, <laughs> Julian Marty, he, Marty owns a bar. His bartender, Ray, John Getz, as you said, otherwise known to, I think, people of our generation mostly as the sleazy guy in The Fly and the sleazy guy in Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Mm-hmm. He is having an affair with Marty's wife, Abby, played by Francis McDormand. So Marty hires a PI, uh, Lauren Visser, the amazing, the amazing M. Emmett Walsh, who is inexplicably dressed like the fucking man with the yellow hat from Curious George, the whole movie. He is. Uh, he oh really, I, I don't yes. get it, but it works. Uh, and and uh, Lauren Visser's hired He's to, to kill both of them. But he in mm-hmm. turn double crosses Marty. Uh, killing him, setting him up to to appear, or setting it up to appear that uh, that Abby does it. Mm-hmm. And from there, the movie just kind of proceeds to spiral outward from uh, a series of misunderstandings and triple and double crosses, cover ups, and, and kind of and tragedies as Ray and Abby each misassume each other's supposed role in yes. Marty's death, all while Visser is just kind of sweatily closing in on them to uh, tie up an increasingly frayed series of loose ends. Mm -hmm. And uh, if anyone knows me, um, this, for lack of a better term, uh, is just my shit. Just American crying shit. Mm -hmm. And this this film is kind of one of the purest, I think, extants of that in terms of a a neo-norm. And Blood Simple, the Coen brothers' first film, it really is the big bang of their work in that just about everything that will come after this in yes. their filmography finds its antecedents in this film. Mm-hmm. In this film, you have just about every tone that would come later in their work from yeah. you know the, the high energy goofball shit to deadpan wit to you know straight ahead drama to heroin violence to an almost kind of existential cold ass permafrost horror yeah and you know maybe the only thing yeah the dread exactly that that just that cold dread which if you've ever looked into joel cohen's eyes you know what i'm talking (laughs) about because that man has literally no no soul whatsoever in his eyes um i'm sure he's a nice person but just (laughs) he's a terrifying human being uh you know maybe the only thing that this film lacks is kind of the the sweetness and the heart of something like raising arizona Fargo, Lebowski, or Oh Brother, uh, mm-hmm. but but other than that, this 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 really has everything that comes after for them. So if you are a fan of their body of work, which I am, this really is this is the beginning of every uh, this is the creation of everything that we all like that comes later in their work. And um, and another thing I was thinking about when I was thinking about their body of work, and I don't think I'm going to blow yours or anyone else's minds with this observation, uh, you know, well, there are, of course, a very small handful of exceptions. Most Coen brother films revolve around a scheme gone wrong, a criminal scheme gone yeah. wrong, a scheme, the characters involved in, they think it's gonna improve their lives in some really wild or fantastical way. And instead it becomes the catastrophic motor that drives the plot and dooms a good deal of the characters in it. And what I love about them is that that plot in whichever film is typically borrowed from or stylistically echoes the work of great American crime fiction, Uh, which if, again, anyone knows me, they know that that is kind of 
That's that's just my thing. That's that's what I'm constantly thinking about. And, and Blood Simple, for instance, it's pure James Kane. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, double Indemnity, The Postman Always Rings Twice, although unlike both of those films, in this case, it's the husband trying to kill the two cheaters instead of the other way around. But Blood Simple is pure pure James Kane, though it does have a it does have a title that comes from Dashiell the Dashiell Hammett. Hammett line in Red Harvest, where the the nameless lead character, the lead detective, the Continental Op, he tells a girl in the film that this this damned berg's getting to me. If I don't get away soon, I'll be going blood simple like the natives. Mm-hmm. Which is very very fitting for this film. And then you have something like Miller's Crossing, which is very much Hammett again. Fargo yes. is structured uh, like a true crime adaptation. Lebowski is absolute convoluted Raymond Chandler nonsense. No Country <laughs> is a direct adaptation of Cormac McCarthy and so on and on and on and on. And, and in doing so, in doing so, these themes and you know these structural resonances and these kind of borrowing of technique place the Coen's work directly in the lineage of classic American crime storytelling, which I very much believe these pulp crime and PI tells to be. And so the reason that I was drawn very quickly to their work was, was very simply that, that this was just the, the filmic equivalent, their work is just the filmic equivalent of all of the paperback crime novels that I keep in my back pocket whenever I go somewhere or my backpack Mm -hmm. whenever I go somewhere. And that genre, for whatever reason, is very comforting to me. Yeah. Uh, it, there's just something about it, the, the bloody morality of it, I guess, that I, that I find fascinating. And, and I think it's that. I think it's that, um, God, oh, God, what, what, how long is this? How long is this, um, this podcast, this conversation of you, yours and mine been going on? Because here's where I'm going to – I just wanted to mark when I'm going to make a hairpin term turn into just pure pretentiousness instead of light pretentiousness we're going to go into pure pretentiousness now what's it been like maybe 10 minutes seven yeah minutes? you're fine okay. let's just mark the road right here uh just to warn everyone this is where it's going to get really pretentious but uh, <laughs> I, I think that we all i think we all kind of crave especially in times that are very both crazy and frightening and boring like like right now uh in the world uh, I think we crave narrative, and one of the yes. reasons we cr- we crave narrative is because sense. there is an. I think with most narrative, there is an implied morality. There is an implied mm-hmm. right and wrong. And since we're talking about how Blood Simple kind of created the style and create and, and created the storytelling style for the Coens by putting all of these American crime fiction tropes in a blender, one of the other things that I like about their filmography that begins here in this film is that often there are these, these hulking figures, these hulking monstrous figures that pop up in their films that always act as like a golem that's been generated from like the mud of the, the the character's mistakes. Uh, they, They are like these walking, talking tumors, growing tumors of consequences made manifest. Yeah, and in, and in this case True. here, we have again the great M. Emmett Walsh, and and again I just I we should I, I could do a whole hour right now just talking about M. Emmett Walsh and how how perfect he is <laughs> in this film, and how 
but yeah, but that, that, I, you gotta, I gotta shut up now because well, that's funny, me shutting up now. But I gotta shut up now about M. Emmett Walsh because I'm gonna, I could go on for an hour or so about him. But um, here in Blood Simple, you have M. Emmett Walsh as Lauren Visser, um, the first of their kind of monstrous, seemingly unstoppable, almost Terminator like villains that just, it's like they are aroused from the earth. Uh, by the bad deeds of the characters in this plot, and they have they have come to met out some sort of punishment, almost biblical level punishment mm-hmm. for the bad deeds that have called them to us. You have him in this film. You've got uh, in Raising Arizona. You got Tex Cobb as yeah. the Road Warrior, Leonard Smalls. Fargo has Peter Stormare as the yes. perfectly named here. <laughs> It was a Gare Grimsrud, I think, is what what his name was. I don't know, but I, only Steve Buscemi can say it properly. But I, I love that. Oh, brother has the very Poseidon-like Sheriff Cooley. No country has uh, Anton, Anton Chigurh, mm-hmm. and it's in these characters that you actually see a kind of, you know, what it's going to be weird to use the word sweet when applying it to a character like Anton Chigurh, but it, it's in these these very kind of malignant and unstoppable forces of punishment you kind of see this very sweet and simplistic morality that plays against the screwball complexity of the cohen's works despite all the zany gags and stunts and the hairpin you know plot swerves a lot of their films boil down to if you do bad things and if you hurt people and if you bring bad things into the world you set in motion things that will hurt yourself and others and that's just bad don't do it it's Old Testament. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it is. And, and I think that there's something to that that I find. Because, again, they are the Coen brothers. You know, always you always get the sense that they are the goofballs and the punks in the back of the room lobbing spitwads. And I think it's always interesting that when you find out that that person actually has a moral code and a moral center, mm-hmm. there's something sweet about that. And it's 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 like the, the, that moment when you watch Fargo for the first time and Francis McDormand's character is driving the aforementioned Gare Grimsrud uh, uh, to justice. And the sadness with which she just says, I just don't understand all of this for money, little all bit these of money. murders, all yep. these bodies for just a little bit of money. And yeah. the way she just, she's holding back tears mm-hmm. and just saying, I, I just don't understand it. And then of course, you know, the next scene you have her in bed with her husband, she's like, you know what, we're doing all right. And they're talking about, what is it? The five cent stamp or whatever the three cent mm-hmm. stamp um, that, that his artwork has been featured on. And then, and you, you recognize despite all their jokes, despite all their violence, despite all that existential dread that there is, there is a beating heart in the surf under the surface of their work and that there is an indeed a morality there. And I think that that's probably why I like crime fiction so much okay is, sure. is because it's that that narrative application of a kind of justice that we certainly don't see mm-hmm. in this in our own world yeah you know, it's very fitting sense. it's very fitting that um this film begins with maybe um maybe one of my favorite lines in any crime film ever which is uh well, you know what i know is texas and in texas you're on your own as we very much learned in the last month. Um, And there were a lot of people who are going to get away with that, going to get away with what happened to Texas earlier this year. 
and which is galling and frustrating and disgusting. Yeah. And, you know, there's not, you know, and, and I could be wrong. We'll, we'll see. But, you know, the fact that there's not going to be an Anton Sugar or there's not going to be a <laughs> Lauren Visser called out of the earth to deal with Ted Cruz. Uh, that's frustrating to me. And I think that that's why <laughs> I can en- I enjoy crime fiction and why I specifically enjoy the crime fiction of the Coen brothers is because it does apply that almost, I'm not a religious person, but it is fun to watch the application of that almost Old Testament sense of justice and righteousness applied to motherfuckers who have it coming. Yes, and there's absolutely. something about that. And even those maybe who you want to see do okay, like, uh, you know, Nick Cage and Holly Hunter in Raising Arizona, they get a punishment of sorts, but it's kind of what they deserve. Mm-hmm. But also because they're good people, yep. you know, there's there's a sweetness and a hope for redemption for characters like that at the end. But, you know, for the characters such as those in this film, um, the doom that befalls them is very much the doom that they pull down upon themselves. Yeah, in that very, in that very, that very James and Cain sense. Um, this is every decision they make, every choice they make, is another thread in the noose that is kind of building around their neck. But it's the noose that they themselves wove, and yeah, yeah that is <laughs> that's a very pretentious. Uh, shotgunning of reasons why, but I, and, and, and but the, and there's you know there's a million other things. It's got the four tops uh, in the soundtrack. What uh, a cool musical motif that's it's, used throughout. It's so good. And not only that, uh, uh, in terms of its palette, it's you know usually you know I don't think you think of Coen Brothers films as being let's say kind of visual. I you don't think of it as being kind of eye candy, but this was very much. Uh, this is just an explosion of colors in this film. I, I think of, you know, Marty uh, walking along uh, with a broken finger to a, a cover of Louie Louie, and the sun is almost just going nova in the screen as yeah. as Lauren is waiting for him and rolling a cigarette and talking to some punks. And you've got the that that pink neon window in the bar that frames Marty's office, and there's just there is an energy and a color and a verve to this film that I think is it's kind of missing from some of their other films. Um, yeah, I love the sound design too. That's what I noticed today, like with the sound of the ceiling fan whipping overhead when Visser is with Marty in the bar and uh, where we're at the safe and something's about to happen. Just some of the the sound throughout the movie. That fan oh, is almost as yeah. effective as apocalypse. the the well, I was gonna say not the apocalypse now fan. Although yeah, that's actually that's way smarter than the thing I was gonna bring up, Jen. Um, the apocalypse now fan, you're right. Um, but uh, I was thinking that as a piece of sound design, that fan is almost as effective as the heartbeat in The Shining. Ooh, in, that's um, a good one. Yeah. In in in, in room two three seven, um, that yes. just where the, the the heartbeat basically becomes part of the soundtrack, and I kept thinking about that this last time I watched the film that that just the whoosh the slow whoosh of the fan, and how it's it's just kind of unrelenting metronome quality, mm-hmm. uh, was very much of a piece of the 
that unrelenting nature of consequence that, that consequences tend to have in a Coen Brothers film, where there is mm-hmm. there is kind of no escape, there is no negotiating, uh, uh, there is no neco- to to quote a film that our pal Blake is a good friend, a fan of uh, Miami Vice. There's you, you can't negotiate with gravity, um, and <laughs> there is something about that. There is something about the relentlessness of the sound design in this film that I think matches the relentlessness of the dread and the doom that these characters call down upon themselves. And, uh, but yeah, you much better idea on your part that it actually does it. Uh, it, it yeah. Now that you say that it does, it makes me think of um, the almost patronizing nature of the fan that looks down upon Martin Sheen in um, in apocalypse. Now you're right. No, but I mean, the shining. How dare, you? How dare you do this? How dare you one up me? I'm a guest <laughs> Not at show. all. Are you kidding? I was so blown away by your whole speech about the pretentious. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to think what your, your phrasing was. Like, I'm about to get too pretentious. I didn't think so. I thought it was brilliant. Your I analysis. For, I, I, I already forgot what I said because I don't pay attention to myself when I talk. Oh. That's the smart thing to do is just tune out and just let me jibber jabber on for a while and eventually I, I i peter out but before i do i will say another reason that i like this movie in fact or like another reason i love this movie is i think for probably one of the reasons that maybe i can see the coen brothers not liking it and why they are kind of dis not dismissive but they, they i was watching the criterion version i was watching some of the supplemental material and they were making a lot of fun of the movie and the mistakes mm. in it or what they consider to be mistakes in it and something else that I love about it, though, that, that, that they don't seem to, is that, goddamn, this is such a young man's, or rather, in this case, young men's film in terms of its energy. Not a, I'm not saying it's a film for young men. A film is obviously made by people mm-hmm. who were very young. You know, for instance, you know, compare it to a film they made nearly nearly what 25 years later uh, no country for old men a film which wholesale just steals entire scenes and structure and character dynamics and even narration from this film both films open the the exact same way with slow slow pans to these kind of barren texas vistas while you have a lead character kind of ominously talking about the nature of life and death and justice in texas and so you have these two films which are extraordinarily similar but made at basically opposite ends of a career and while i love no country truly i do it's an absolutely Mm. amazing film one of the best films of 2007 one of the best films of this century it's just so fucking cold there's a level of an older person's control that has seeped into the Coen brothers later work. And that's fine. That's fine. I, they're amazing, amazing, amazing filmmakers, but it's that kind of coldness where you smirk and you nod at the jokes rather than you laugh out loud at them. Oh, you, you're, interesting. You, you, okay. you feel clever that you caught the joke, but you're not losing control of yourself laughing at it. Mm-hmm. And blood symbol isn't cold. Blood Simple, you Blood Simple loses control, and you kind of lose control when you're watching it. It lets you lose control in a way that no country for old men. And I'm not again. I'm not talking because I understand. I know that it's a masterpiece. I believe it's a masterpiece, but it it lets you lose control with it in a way that no control, no country can't. It's 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 not cold. It's hot. 
Uh, and if you're going to, please, everybody, Jesus, forgive me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to say it. It's blood hot. Uh, <laughs> very much so in that very show-offy film student kind of way with flourishes like that, um, like that Sam Raimi style, Evil Dead camera rushing up along uh, uh, Ray's front yard when uh, Marty is trying to kidnap Abby one random morning. Yes. Um, or the camera dancing and floating around drunken patrons at Marty's bar the first night that we're in it. Or even the match cut transitions like the fan, the, the, the fan in Marty's office mm-hmm. to the the fan in Ray's bedroom, yeah. which are all which are all kind of very film schooly in a way mm-hmm. um, and obvious. And you know that it's probably, you know, and also because, uh, you know, the Coens edited this film under the, uh, the moniker uh, Roderick James. Uh, it's done in a way that is very film schooly and clever, but also probably just them trying to duct tape a film together with a shoestring budget. And it's stuff like stuff like that that you know they would die before they would put in a film now. Uh, and there's something endearing and kind of creaky and scotch taped about the film that I very much appreciate. This is um, a film that is you know bare bones, no budget whatsoever. The op- the the wonderful opening scene of them in a car or on a rainy night of um, Abby and Ray in the front seat of his car, driving down the highway, deciding whether or not they're going to fuck or he's just going to drop her off and avoid the situation entirely. It's a rainy Texas night. You've got um, these cars rushing by on the opposite lane. That was filmed in someone's garage in Austin with a lady standing on top of the car with a water hose spraying (laughs) the windshield. And then there was a guy on a dolly that he just had two flashlights tied to, and he would just rush past the car, turn the flashlights on, wheel them back to the front of the car, turn them back on, and rush past the car again. Like that's how low budget this movie is. And there's something kind of endearing to me about a film that is both brilliant, but also that kind of janky, and that it manages to pull off the trick that I just... I mean, how do you beat that? How can you how can you top that, Jen? I can't top that. Can't. No one can top that. The no. Coens can't top that. That's why Blood Symbols is their best movie, and I don't oh, give wow. a good goddamn uh, <laughs> what anybody says about No Country, about a serious man, about Lebowski. Um, it, 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 there's going to be some asshole that's going to try and be a hot shot and say the Hudsucker proxy. I don't care. It's Blood Symbols. <laughs> it's their best movie, and it's 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 perfection. It's perfection. And I think that's what I'm trying to get at. And God help anyone who's still listening at this point. It's perfection in spite of itself. Uh, no country has every right to be perfect. And I'm like, I hate that I'm setting these two films against each other, but they are. No country is self-consciously built upon blood symbol. Uh, no country has every right and every reason to be perfect. It was written by maybe one of the four or five greatest living writers that we have in America. Um it has some of our best performers. It has these right uh, these directors at the height of their power. Has every reason to be perfect. Why I love no why I love um, uh, Blood Simple is that it's perfect, even though it shouldn't be. It's made by a couple of stoner kids in Texas with <laughs> a bunch of people that have zero experience at this, and it's just these two brothers who really like crime novels. Mm-hmm. And they mishmashed a bunch of James Cain tropes together. 
they dressed their villain like the good guy from Curious George, and they just hoped <laughs> it would all work out. And the fact that it did, even though it shouldn't have, that is extraordinarily endearing to me. Yeah. And it's almost something like what a Coen Brothers character would do. And Oh, I love that. Yeah. And it's it's the kind of I feel like it's the kind of movie a Coen Brothers character would make. And there's something about that that is, you know, it's extraordinarily comforting to me. And um it also features and again, God help you, poor Jen and your listeners as I continue to machine gun this stuff at you. Um I wanted to make a point of, of mentioning this in that I, I think it features the definitive sequence, the definitive scene in a Coen Brothers film. Um, and after I say this, I'm going to put myself on oxygen since I've been talking so much. But uh, and, and a spoiler, uh, everyone put on earmuffs if they haven't watched the movie yet. Uh, the final sequence of the film after some incredible. Yeah. After some, a, a, a lot of confusion and mistaken identity, mm-hmm. Lauren Visser lays the again the the golem of this film. Lauren Visser lies possibly dying on Abby's bathroom floor under her sink, bleeding out uh, from a bullet to the stomach from Abby, and. He lays beneath a sink and he's looking up at, at, its mm-hmm. under, at its underside and it has this almost Rube Goldbergian series of pipes interlaced beneath it. Yeah. And he, and he laughs. Uh, it's almost as if he's looking at the plot of a Coen Brothers film with, uh, and, and in that moment, he gets it. He gets mm-hmm. the joke. Uh, all of these twisty, turny, impossibly jumbled pipes. Uh, he's in them. You can see all the intricacies and the idiocies that led to this moment, the convolutions and the complications. And he just can't help but laugh at it the way yeah. we would. And and, and, and and unlike unlike most of the characters in a Coen Brothers film, Lauren gets the joke, mm-hmm. and he gets that he gets that he's part of the joke. Yeah, and. In a moment, and in, 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 in a moment, it's going to transition to him being the butt of the joke, uh, because um, like most Cohen characters, he sees a growing consequence budding off of this madness. Just as Marty's actions called him himself, Lauren, down like some kind of punishing demon, he looks up and he sees this plump and pregnant dollop this droplet of water growing ever thicker and kind of Mm -hmm. tremulous and shaking almost too heavy to cling to the cold iron of the pipes and it's going to fall directly on his head and he looks at it with the utter horror of someone who has a perfect understanding of his situation and the depth to which he is fucked within it yeah and that to me is the er moment that is the most perfect coen brothers moment because it is a character looking at the machinations of a coen brothers film and doing what we do half the time at those films which is laugh at it mm-hmm. and then like the characters them uh, most of the coen brothers characters themselves at some point looking at that twisty turny edifice with absolute horror realizing 
that something unrelenting is coming down to punish them. Yeah. In this case, it's a drop of water, which is probably the worst thing in the world. But as a metaphor, it's pretty cute and pretty nifty, and it works. And wash away the grind. Yeah, yeah. And, and I've I've I've, I've always watched this movie even when I've sometimes in the rare moments when I've been busy or not been in the mood to want to sit, sit and finish it. I always hang tight to get to that final scene because there's something <laughs> so, so satisfying about, about that moment, which I'm sure they weren't thinking of at the time. You know, I don't, I, I don't think that they're such auteurs that they're like, we're going to construct an entire oeuvre of films with, with twisty, turny plot. <laughs> and it's going to be like, he's looking at that from our first movie onward. I get that. That's not how filmmakers work. And yet it is so perfect knowing what we know now, having seen the rest of their filmography to rewind back to this first movie and watch it cap off with that most perfect sequence and realize that, yeah, in that sequence, they basically gave birth to everything that would come next. None of it's as good as Blood Simple, and I don't care what anyone says, but <laughs> all of those reasons, plus about a million more, that, that's why I can always find something when I watch Blood Simple. Or if it's three in the morning and I can't think straight and my my brain is just mush, yeah. it's equally a film that I can just watch and not have to think about whatsoever and just go like, this is cool. This is fun. This is neat. Tune out too. I, I, li yeah. I, like, the, I like pink neon. This is good. I can do this. <laughs> I like Louis it's Louis the four covers. tops. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I like the four tops. Um, and I just, I think that it is a film that works on all levels. Like I said, it has almost every tone you could want or will want or will see in any other Coen Brothers film. It works if you want to be a hyper pretentious intellectual and jibber jabber about it on a podcast. It works if <laughs> you've had a few too many to drink and you've just gotten home and it's 3 a.m. on a Saturday night and you want to put something on that's not too long and is a lot of fun and a little dark and a little sexy and a little scary and a little funny. It just, it has all of that. It contains multitudes. And plus it's a cool ass title and you really can't beat that. No, you can't. Well, I want to thank you so much for jibber jabbering today at us and sharing your wisdom. Travis, you gave me an idea. Would you want to do maybe like a Coen Brothers episode with me sometime? Oh my God. Is uh, is, 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 is maybe with the caveat that after every extraordinarily overlong description of why each individual film is good, I can cap each one off by going, but it's still not as good as Blood <laughs> Deal. We have that. We'll put it in writing. Well, fair enough. Well, hey, Jen, thanks for having me on and letting me jibber-jabber about the best Coen Brothers film. And if, if anyone has somehow made it through this, A, I salute your Herculean fortitude, but B, if you've made it through this without having watched Blood Simple first, please stop whatever you're doing. Come back to this podcast, but stop everything you're doing and go watch Blood Simple. On the Criterion channel, I think. It's at least on the disc. And yeah, go watch a perfect film. There you go. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. <laughs>